Ephesians chapter 5, I'm just going to read one verse. We've been looking at the filling or being filled with the Spirit of God or having a Spirit-filled life the last several Sunday mornings, and we're going to continue on that this morning. In Ephesians 5 and verse 18, it says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And he tells us what that spirit-filled life is like. Speaking yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting yourselves one another in the fear of God. So, being spirit-filled, let's, let's pray and we'll look at this. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have to open your precious word. Thank you, Father, for the promises that are contained therein that, Father, we can uh, receive by faith and act upon and implement in our daily lives. And thank you for the gift of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for the comfort we can find in a relationship with you. Father, I pray today as we look into the Word of God and, and consider, again, being Spirit-filled, I pray that, that you would work in our lives and the Spirit would have His will and His way and that you would be glorified as you promised. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I fear that the average Christian fails to recognize the work of the Spirit of God in their life, and therefore they miss out on the joy that can be found in the Christian life. Uh, Some talk about a lot about revival, but revival comes about because God's people allow the Spirit of God to fill them. And for revival to happen, there has to have been a lapse because revival, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, there was a great revival, I saw a lot of people saved. Revival isn't people getting saved. You revive something that's been, it's, it's a renewal. It's a renewal. It's a bringing, it's like taking an old car, uh, you know, I, let's say an old tractor, I like tractors better. So you take an old tractor and you, you renew it, you know, you, you restore it. And that's the idea of revival. It's, it's a, revival is for God's people. It's really getting back to, again, being filled with the Spirit. Now, and we're going to see, the filling of the Spirit is not a one-time thing, as some would like to say. But you can keep that revival in your soul as you learn to allow the Spirit of God to stay in charge of your life. You can keep that spirit of revival. For many in our day, and we've been talking a lot about this, Brother Hoyle's been talking a lot about this in Sunday school, a relationship with Christ is kind of looked upon as an unnecessary thing. God is more of a tradition that is put on on Sunday and put off on Monday. And it doesn't, or he doesn't affect their everyday life. If, however, you have a relationship with Christ and experience with Him, it's something that you can enjoy from day to day. After all, God came down to earth in the person of Christ to dwell with man. Matthew 1, 23 talks about His name should be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God came to dwell with us. 
Colossians, and Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, he said that it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And here in Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 17, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. See, God wants to dwell in us, in our lives. And of course, He dwells in us, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith through the Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, uh, verse 11, the Bible there tells us that Christ dwells in us by His Spirit. And so, you know, God wants to have that day-in, day-out relationship with Him through His Spirit. And, of course, the Holy Spirit is promised to all believers. You know, Peter spoke of that promise that was promised of the Father in, in, in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. And, and we know here, see here from this verse that the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers a Christian to live the Christian life. Again, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, And be, drunk, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, wine overpowers the senses, the inhibitions of an individual. It takes control. It... it, it causes a person to do things they normally would not do. And, and in comparison or contrast, the Spirit of God, when, this, when a person is filled with the Spirit of God, they will again be, be controlled by the Spirit, and they will do things that normally in their flesh they would not do. It will empower them. You know, Jesus promised his disciples in Acts chapter eight verse, verse or Acts chapter one verse eight that ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Now, think about that group of disciples. Think about Peter. How much power did Peter have as a witness before Pentecost? Well, you know, there was a maid that saw him and said, oh, you're one of them. He said, no, I'm not. I mean a maid. He was afraid to confess Christ to a maid. But yet after he had the power of the Spirit of God, he declared who Christ was before the whole multitude, before the very ones who had crucified Christ. He said, you have, who you, wicked hands, have crucified and slain. God hath raised up. And we see in the, in the Bible records for us in the book of Acts, uh, you know, that they had, that how, how the Spirit of God had taken control of their lives, and, 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 and it was evidence of that. And for example, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, after they had faced some persecution or some threatening, they had gone back to the, the assembly. And in verse 31 it says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. I mean, there was such power that the place was shaken, and they spake the word of God with boldness. They were not afraid in the face of persecution to preach the word of God. And again, in Acts chapter 13, verse 52, you know, Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, they had just been cast out, of a city, 
And so they go to another city. It says in this, and, 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 you know, they've been, they, verse 51 says, But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. I mean, they'd just been kicked out of a city. They'd been run out for preaching the gospel. Don't bring that here. You know, get out of here. They were, they, their lives were threatened, and so they go somewhere else, and they were just rejoicing. Could you imagine? If you were threatened, would you go away rejoicing? You see, what made that possible? It's the... It's the power of the Spirit of God that took control of the lives. And it made this difference in their life. But you know, Christians, Christians can be carnal or spiritual. You know, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 1, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Of course, the word carnal means fleshly. It means fleshly. Uh, you know, it's not talking about our body there, but it includes our, our, our moods, our desires, our wants, uh, our ambitions. It can be carnal. And Paul said, you're carnal. And, and you know, we, we could, you know, we, you know, people sometimes uh, divide up People into two groups, Christians into two groups, by being spiritual and carnal based upon what a person looks like or what a person knows or by what a person does. I mean, if you're a preacher or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, you've got to be spiritual, right? But if you don't know your Bible very well and you don't, you know, and, 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 and you just got newly saved, then, then you've got to be carnal, right? No, that's not how it works. You know, a new Christian can be spiritual. See, a spiritual is not necessarily someone who's mature in the faith or knows a whole lot about the Bible. A spiritual person is simply one who has put God in charge of their life and does what they know to be right then. They may not know as much about the Bible as someone else who should know and doesn't do it. You know, sad fact is, in many churches, there are people that are many, many churches are filled with carnal Christians that have been saved a long time. They ought to be spiritual, but they're not. You see, carnality and spirituality depends on choices that I make. Am I going to choose to obey God, or am I going to choose to obey self? And there really is only two choices. Pleasing God or pleasing myself? You see, a spiritual person, a person that's filled with the Spirit of God and under His control, is not just spiritual at church. He's spiritual at working at the city. Or digging up a septic tank. Or working at Brantley's, or taking care of birds or serving at Chick-fil-A, or whatever it may be, or being, or being a vet tech. You know, a spiritual person is spiritual all the time. 
everywhere. Not just at church. Whether you're cooking a meal or doing laundry or cleaning house or reading to children in a nursery or, 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 or uh, looking at a website. You know, they are spiritual in their relationships. Because the Spirit of God leads or controls their life. So, what is the filling of the Spirit? What exactly is it? Well, again, the Bible here tells us in verse 18, Be not drunk with wine, where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, as we look at this this morning, I want to notice, first of all, three things that the filling of the Spirit is not. Number one, it is not sinlessness. You somehow have this idea that when you become filled with the Spirit, you cease to sin. Of course, that's a kind of a, a Pentecostal or charismatic type teaching that you can come to the place where of a sinless perfection. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's just not reality. I mean, Paul, Paul plainly stated that. Uh, it's, it's really an impossibility in this life. Because the Bible says that we're gonna, we will sin. Sin's going to be a part of this life until we get to heaven. But when a spiritual Christian who is filled with the Spirit sins, they notice a difference immediately. They know they have done wrong, and they get it right quickly. That's the difference. They get it right quickly. You know, Proverbs 24, 16 says this, For a just man falleth down seven, falleth seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall in mischief. You know, David fell badly on several occasions, but David did not stay down. David would confess his sin. He would get right with God and he would get back up again. See, that was the difference between David and a lot of other men in the Old Testament. You know, David committed some, some terrible sins. He was, he was far from sinless. But he was spiritual because when he would fall, he would confess his sin and get back up again. So, the filling of the Spirit is not sinlessness. It is not a solitary or one-time happening. Again, many teach that the filling of the Spirit is a one-time thing which lasts the rest of your life. But here in Ephesians 5.18, it says, but be filled with the Spirit. And it speaks of a continuous action, a continuous state of being. You, know, you will lose the, the filling of the Spirit by God, of God by sinning and not confessing that sin. God wants, me, wants us to confess our sin so that he can fill us again. He wants to be in charge of my life. You know, the same wording here is used in Philippians 4.19 where it says, My God shall supply all your need according to his rich and glory by Christ Jesus. So does God, for one time, give you all that you're going to need for the rest of your life? And at one time. And it'll, it'll last the rest of your life. No, he continues to supply your needs for the rest of your life. It's not just a one-time thing. And the filling of the Spirit is not a one-time thing. 
Again, the Charismatics teach that it's a one-time thing. You know, when you get filled with spirit, you'll speak in tongues and you, you know, do all this stuff. And no, no, no. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a solitary happening. It's not a sensation. It's not some feeling that I have. It's not dependent upon feelings. Now, there may be a feeling. Just as some people have feelings when they get saved and others feel differently. But, but uh, it isn't dependent on, on feelings. It's by believing what God has said and acting on it. You know, God, again, God does not lie, so we can trust what he said to be true. So it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a, a solitary happening, it's not a sensation, it's not sinlessness. But then I want you to notice what it is. Well, number one, it is being emptied of self. Again, in Ephesians 5.18, it says, Be not drunk with wine where in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So the filling of the Spirit involves the emptying of ourselves. Now think of a glass. Now this, this glass, this cup I have here, you can't see it, but there's water about to here. Now it's not full of water. It's half full. It's more than half full of air. It's more than half full of air. Now, the more water I put in this, the less air is in it. So if I want this glass to be filled with water, I've got to empty it will empty out the air. You know, you've got to get the air out of your life. The fluff in your life, the worthlessness and the sin in your life, and allow the spirit full control. Allow him to fill you. You must empty yourself of yourself. You have to be willing to set aside your desires, your pride, your goals, your design, designs, your, the plans for your life, and be filled with the Spirit. You have to be emptied of self so the Lord can take you like an empty glove and fill your life and take control of it. You know, Colossians 3, 4, Paul wrote to the church Colossae and it says, Christ who is our life. We have to make him our life. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I. He had emptied himself. And it was a daily thing. It's something he did every day. giving the Lord control of his life every day, emptying him of self every day. So it's, it's being emptied of self. Secondly, it's being, and of course, it's being, this goes along with it, being occupied by God. You know, if, if I would put my whole hand in a glove, it's occupied. So, use that glove for an example. You know, a person gets saved, the Holy Spirit of God moves into their life, and he occupies their entire life like a glove. But maybe then they hear some preaching on being faithful to the house of God. And they don't like that, so they pull a finger out. And then they hear some more preaching about witnessing, and they don't like that, so they pull a finger out. Maybe they hear some more preaching about tithing, and well, I just can't do that, so they pull another finger out. And it goes on and on, you know, about dress, and they pull another finger out. And pretty soon you have an unusual, 
unusable glove. You know, haven't lost a salvation, but you can't do anything. You have a glove on your hand, but none of the fingers are in the right places, and your hand is useless to do anything. Oh, you can still move around, maybe push a few things around, but if you had to pick something up, you'd be in trouble. You know, I'm afraid, afraid many times that's how we live in our Christian life. We don't allow the Spirit of God to control us and fill us, and we're just going through the motions without effect. Useless to God. So we need to be occupied by God. There's a third thing here. And I've mentioned this a little bit in passing, but being controlled by the Spirit. And again, it says to be filled with the Spirit of God. And if you notice in verse 19, it says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a life that is, that is controlled by the Spirit of God. See, the Holy Spirit wants to control all of your life, every nook, every little cranny, every single part of your life. The Spirit of God wants complete control so He can accomplish what He wants in your life. But so often we divide our lives into compartments. Yeah, we men have boxes. They say men have boxes, and they think in boxes. And they can close one box, keep all the other boxes open. Now, women have one big box, and it's all called emotion. But, you know, and, and we, this is what we do in life. We have compartments that we give to God, but other compartments we want to keep for ourselves. That we don't want to surrender to God. You know, we have a compartment for family, one for church life, one for business, one for recreation. And then we tell God what areas he can control. But we try to keep them out of the others. But you know, it doesn't work that way. God wants control of every single area of my life. But you know, our problem is, this is, this is, this is our attitude. I don't want anyone controlling my life. Let me ask you, you don't want God controlling your life? Do you know what that tells me? You really don't know my God. You don't want God who always does what's right to control your life. Do you always want to be right? If you always want to be right, let God control every area of your life. And you will always be right. You will never be wrong. Think about it. You know, be controlled by the spirit of living God. See, the real problem is we want to hang on to our sin over here in this compartment. Our ambition over here in this box. We don't want God telling us. But if you want to be right in every area of your life, let God control it. And you will always be right. And you will have that intimate relationship with God because he is always right. 
and you'll walk together in agreement with him. And have the peace of God that passeth all understanding. I don't know about you, but I like it when I'm right. And all I have to do to be right is to let the Spirit of God control my life. Now therein is the problem. Because I don't always like people telling me what to do. And he is a person. So sometimes me and him have a little, you know, uh, you know what I'm talking about. But see, the Spirit of God wants to control your life for His glory and for your good. God is good. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk, how? Uprightly. So why would we not want God, the Spirit of the living God, Controlling my life. But that's what being filled with the Spirit is. It's allowing the Spirit of God to control or lead my life. You know, Joshua's man was led by the Spirit of God. Moses was a man that was led by the Spirit of God. Paul was a man that was led by the Spirit of God. He was facing martyrdom, but he was not down in the dumps. He was rejoicing in the promises that his Lord had given to him. Peter became a man who walked by the Spirit of God. He faced martyrdom, but he was rejoicing. Fourthly, it is being effective for God. And again, go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. <clears throat> it says, and, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Now I made mention of this a little bit, that about Peter in particular, but after Peter received the power, the empowering of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost, of course, he, he became the first pastor after the Lord Jesus at the church there in Jerusalem. He preached the gospel in Jerusalem. Then he went down to, uh, to Cornelius and preached the gospel there. He went down to Samaria and preached the gospel there. And, and when he comes to the, the epistles of Peter, he's writing from Babylon. I'm... I'm telling you, literal Babylon, the city of Babylon, not Rome. I don't believe he went to, ever went to Rome. Catholic Church tries to say that, but no, he was writing from Babylon. He preached the gospel in Judea, Samaria, and Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth because he had the power of God. It affected his life, and it affected people wherever he went. You know, if we're going to reach people with the gospel, reach the lost with the gospel and affect their life, we must have the power of the Spirit of God. It's like Brother Hoyle said, 
Braxton said, I don't feel drawn. You see, except the Father draw them. We're the ones that take the gospel. And the Spirit of God dwells in us. And so we have this, we, have, we, we, we are partners in this with the Spirit of God to be a witness and testimony for Him, to be used to draw men to the Savior. And so when the Spirit of God came upon the disciples there in the day of Pentecost, they all of a sudden had this power. They became usable to the Lord to affect the lives of others. Look at John chapter 14. There's an interesting thing there that this came to mind as I was preparing for this. John 14, verse 12. John 14, 12 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I shall do, that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, what was going to happen when Jesus went to his Father? Well, verse 13, Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And ye shall ask anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. See, when Jesus went to the Father, he said, you're going to do greater works than I do. Jesus never left Israel, except maybe one time. He never went very far. You know, really, in comparison to what the disciples did Work-wise, with the spreading of the gospel, Jesus didn't do a whole lot. He never hardly left Israel. He didn't, you know, we could say, and and trying to be careful how I say this, that he didn't really himself, while he was on earth, impact that many people. But boy, did the disciples after he left and sent the Spirit of God. In fact, it was said about the disciples that these that have turned the world upside down have come hither also. You see, when the Spirit of God, when, when, when the Father sent the Spirit of God uh, and, and he testified that the Spirit of God was in, was in them and he testifies the Spirit of God, they... They affected, through him, the lives of many people. So it's being effective for God. You know, we must have. Without the Spirit of God, we can't do anything for his glory. So how do I get it? How do, I be, how do I get filled with the Spirit? Let's notice several things. Number one, and I've got to hurry. There, should be, there needs to be a desire. A desire. In John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And verse 37. The Bible says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If a man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow 
rivers of living water. Uh, Jesus promised, of course, the filling of the Spirit to those who are thirsty, to those who are sincerely desire it. Uh, I feel that, that there are many who want to have the filling, or want to be full, but don't desire to be full. See, preacher, that's confusing. In other words, they want to have that, the blessings of being filled with the Spirit of God, but they don't want to yield their life to get it. They don't want to pay the price. They, they don't really thirst after it. They want it, but they don't want it. They're sort of like the sluggard who desireth and hath nothing. He's not willing to pay the price. He's not willing to foot forth the effort. He's not willing to give up himself and work. You see, if you want to be filled with the Spirit of God so you can use by God, you're going to have to desire it bad enough to pay the price to get it. You're going to have to empty yourself of everything you want. Lay aside your own ambitions so the Holy Spirit can occupy your life and control it. So do you really desire it? Are you willing to give up anything for it? So there has to be desire. Secondly, there needs to be an acknowledgement of sin. Uh, in 1 John 1, 1.9, the Bible says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, we have to acknowledge uh, uh, sin. Doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that I become sinless. That's not the filling of the Spirit of God. But if you're filled with the Spirit... It's because you have acknowledged any known sin and confessed it God. We have to acknowledge any known sin in our life. We have to be willing to let God examine us. You know, if you should desire not only to put sin aside, but should also desire to know if there's anything in your life that you can do better to please the Lord. You know, the psalmist said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. So we have to be willing to confess, to acknowledge and confess our sin. Third, we have to ask. Go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And verse 9. Luke 11 verse 9. Jesus had just given the model prayer, telling his disciples how to pray. And then he continues in the subject of prayer. And in verse 9, pick up there, it says, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, he that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, notice this, give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And then 
And I believe a parallel passage there would be John chapter 14, verse 13 through 18 that we just read, where Jesus said, if you ask anything in my Father's name, he will give it to you. And then he concludes that the Father was going to send the Spirit. He would not leave you comfortless. He would not leave you without a helper. He would not leave you without power. You see, Jesus promised his disciples that they would that they, if they needed power, all they had to do was ask God and the Father would answer their prayer. You see, if we are willing to, if we would desire it and willing to acknowledge our sins, we just need to ask and the, and the Father will give us the power of the Spirit of God to take control of our life. But if God shows something, shows you something in your life, you're not willing to deal with it, the Spirit of God can't take control of that area. But if we are willing to confess it, He will quickly forgive and again take charge of our life. So we need to ask. Fourthly, we need to accept it by faith. Hebrews eleven six was said, "Without faith, it is impossible to please Him." You know, we, you know, faith is simply, you know, believing God and acting upon it, uh, accepting what is true and acting upon it. You know, Christopher Columbus had faith that the Earth was round. Everyone else said it was flat. He said, "I have to prove it." And he did. He had faith. You know, we have faith to believe that God will save us from our sins and take us to heaven. We need to have the same kind of faith that believing that God can give us the filling of the Holy Spirit. He said he would give it to us. We need to believe him. We need to act, and we need to act upon it. That's the fifth thing. We need to act on it. You know, again, faith is not a feeling. There are times where you may... Do you always feel saved? Some of you are laughing. And you won't always feel feel filled with the Spirit of God. But again, we can't go on our feelings. Salvation is not based on our feelings. It's based on the promises of God and the Word of God. And so is the filling of the Spirit. And then we need to act upon it. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Yeah, my personal opinion is that Paul was a very stubborn man. Very persistent, very strong willed. And he tells us in Romans that he struggled with his flesh and the Spirit of God. The things that I would not, that do I. The things that I would, that do I not. You know, he, he, he had that struggle. He wrote to the Galatians and said, talked about the, 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 the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against flesh. He understood that. He struggled with that. He had a strong will. Like many of us do. But this is what he says. In Romans 6, verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin... But yield yourselves unto God as those are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. 
So there has to be an acting on what we know or what we believe, what we have accepted by faith. We have to act on it and make choices to obey what we know is right. Verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And again in verse 22. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So don't give your body over to sin in the flesh. Give your body over to righteousness, to the Holy Spirit of God. You have to make the choice whether you're going to yield in your life. Am I going to act upon what is right? Or am I going to act upon what I want and what is wrong? And if you yield yourselves to God, you become, as he says here, become servants of God. And of course, a servant obeys his master. And as a servant of God, if God shows us something in his word, we shouldn't argue about it. We should submit to it. We should not question him. He's the one that, again, he's the one that knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything about us, inside and out. He knows the future as well as the past. He knows what our motivations are. He knows what makes you tick. So why in the world would we want to question God or think he's making a mistake in my life? He knows what is best for you and for me. And when when we as, as God's children don't let God be in charge of our life, we're really saying God doesn't know what's best for me. That's what we're saying. God doesn't know what he's doing. I know better. And so, the question is, are we spirit-filled? There was a missionary by the name of Fenton Hall that one of his fellow students said of him, Quote, I think he was the greatest man that I'd ever met, unquote. But Fenton Hall gave four rules to live by. He was a missionary to, to Amazon. Number one, if you want to have, a, and he's talking about a spirit-filled life, blessed of the Lord. Number one, full submission to God, shown by constant or continual surrender. Full submission. He recognized that you can be filled with the Spirit of God right now, but five minutes from now you might lose the spirit, filling of the Spirit because of unconfessed sin in your life. So when you allow sin to come in this day, you lose the filling of the Spirit in that moment. So there needs to be full submission to God. Secondly, number two, a constant looking for of guidance, um, of guidance expecting Him to guide you. We don't have a right to order our own life. That is up to the Lord. In other words, anything in my life is open to veto from God. You know, at our house, the kids would often say, Mom and the kids would have this scheme or something they wanted to do, you know. 
But of course, they'd always say, well, yeah, dad has veto power. You know. Our vote really doesn't matter all that much. Dad just can veto the whole thing, you know. And that's true. You know, God should have veto power in any area of my life. We should expect him to guide us. Number three, acting in absolute obedience to his guidance. If the Lord shows me something he wants done in my life, I don't have any right to change it or add my own plans. God doesn't change his mind. If I know it's God's will, I cannot change course. And then fourthly, a constant realization that, our, that of ourselves, we can do nothing. I can't preach. I can't teach. I can't witness. I can't counsel. I need God's help. You know, if we ever lose that attitude, we're finished. We're finished. One writer said, he said, I've seen a lot of preachers who have been in the ministry 10 or 15 years, and then they just start to coast. They have plenty of sermons prepared already that they can just pull out. They don't really need to study because they feel they already know everything they need to know. And their life becomes ineffective for God. And if we start relying on our own power, we're going to go just like every other church in the world. And pretty soon the Lord will remove our candlestick. You know, Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, Without me, ye can do nothing. You see, we can be filled with the Spirit. But it comes with a price. We have to be willing to allow, to be emptied of self. And allow the Lord to occupy our lives and to control us and lead us. Are we willing? Like I say, if you want to be always right, let the Spirit of God lead you. You will always be right in every area. Be not drunk with wine where there's excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Are you filled this morning? Do you sense His presence? leading and guiding in your life? Have you yielded your all to him?